Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexum Press. Lexum Press seeks to produce works that will increase biblical literacy in conversation with great tradition of Christian theological reflection. The Christian Essentials series passes down tradition that matters. The books in the Christian Essentials series open up the meaning of the foundations of our faith. Learn more at LexumPress.com. Today's episode, we're continuing the little uh, short talks of mine on questions we ask around Easter time. What do we do with some of the things that we see on the cross? What do we do with some of the things that we see in Jesus's life and ministry? Today, I want to talk about eternal generation. This is a doctrine that has been affirmed all the way back to the church fathers. It's taught in scripture, but it's something that evangelicals at times have had questions about, have said, well, eternal generation is not in the Bible, so why should I affirm it? You know, it doesn't really teach it clearly, doesn't use the words. Well, if we affirm the Trinity, of course, we know the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and yet the Bible speaks clearly about a God who is triune. Okay, but there are questions, obviously, that come up with eternal generation, and how do we talk about it, and what do we do with it? So it's in some ways mysterious. Let's go ahead and say that up front. But at the same time, we need to think through the ways that the Bible speaks of it. So that's what we'll do today. Church Grammar is presented by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all their latest offerings. Our other sponsor is the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. And now here's my talk on eternal generation. But first, the man, the myth, the legend. No big deal. So the doctrine of eternal generation raises a lot of questions, mainly, again, as we said in the intro, because it's mysterious. But at the same time, it can be affirmed and described. Okay, so when scholars seek to describe or affirm eternal generation, they'll look at passages like John 3.16, right? The word begotten, his only begotten son. We talk about the eternal relations of origin that were taught in the early church, that were codified in the creeds, that we have affirmed for 2,000 years, that the Father is unbegotten, that he has a begotten Son who he sent into the world, that the Holy Spirit spirates from them, that he proceeds from them, that he is sent by the Father and Son, that they are all equally and fully God and yet distinct in person. And then the relations that we see in the incarnation and in the economy of salvation and creation, we can see some of that, but obviously we don't want to go too far of pushing the things that we see in the economic trinity into the imminent trinity and say things like Jesus is eternally submissive or that the Holy Spirit is less than. Uh, we can go all the way down the road of Arius and talk about Jesus being created or Jesus being a secondary to God or secondary creature or something like that. We don't want to do any of those things. Okay, but eternal generation is something that helps us think biblically and theologically about the relationship between the Father and Son. Okay, so when I teach on this in class, here are just three kind of basic things that I like to talk about when we talk about eternal generation, when we talk about Jesus' relationship to the Father. Okay, first of all, we need to remember, as the fathers and so many others in church history have reminded us, that we are using finite language to explain an infinite truth. Right? We are fallen, finite people creatures trying to talk about our creator. Okay, so we have to acknowledge first that Trinitarian language is imperfect. It's an imperfect attempt at describing a perfect God. Okay, if we could fully exhaust the doctrine of God, we'd likely not be talking about God anymore, right? If you can put God in a Petri dish 
or plug him into a calculation, it's probably not God. It's probably just a creature that we can fully observe and that we can fully dissect. Okay, oneness and threeness in God. There's one God in three persons. These give us some handles. These help make sense of biblical data. But even these words, in some sense, are going to come short in truly explaining the mystery of the Trinity. Okay, so he is near to us. He has revealed himself to us. But we can only understand so much this side of eternity. Okay, but that doesn't mean that we don't try to understand God. It's not that God is holding out on us. It just means that we accept that our best finite attempts are what they are, finite. But praise God, he has revealed himself to us in scripture. One day we will see him face to face as Revelation 21 and 22 promise. Second, the son must have the same nature as the father. When we talk about eternal generation, we ought to remember that the son must have the same nature as the father. Okay, so the son cannot be created because he is creator. There are all kinds of biblical texts that talk about Jesus being there at creation about Jesus fulfilling these things that only Yahweh can do in Scripture. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, tie him into the Shema, right? One God and one Lord. We see these things in Scripture, and so we know that he's God. We know he's eternal. But even theologically, logically, when we think about this, the Son cannot be created, okay? Because the Father is eternal, and therefore his Son must be. The Son is only a Son if his nature matches his Father's. Okay, so you're welcome to call your dog your child, Call your dog uh, your little boy or the brother of your human child, okay? But that dog is not your child, okay? A person can't birth something from a different nature or a different species, okay? So adoptionist Christology does no good here. If Jesus was adopted later as God's son, he's not co-equal with the father. He doesn't fully share in all his attributes as we see in scripture, okay? He'd be an adopted son, but not properly a son, okay? There'd be some sort of ontological firewall, between them, regardless of their titles and roles. Okay, but the Son is fully God and shares in the Father and Holy Spirit's nature, their authority, their glory, their power. Okay, therefore, he's not adopted or created, but rather co-equal with the Father. Okay, also, we have to remember that the Father's Son isn't exactly like our sons. Okay, so on the one hand, we talk about natures have to match. We kind of know that generally. But we also have to remember that the Father's Son isn't exactly like our sons. Okay, the Son was not born like our children are born. Yes, in the incarnation, of course, the son was born of a virgin as, as the God-man, Jesus Christ. But that's not in question here. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, we're discussing his eternal nature, his eternal relationship to the father outside of time and space before the foundation of the world, before the incarnation, even though, of course, this relationship exists in eternity, even after the incarnation, because Jesus never ceases to be fully divine. His divine nature doesn't change in any sense in the incarnation. Okay, now the church father origin, with all his faults, with all his controversy, one of the things that he gives us uh, language for is really good. He says that when we talk about eternal generation, it's a type of eternal birth, right? We can't understand how someone could have existed eternally and somehow be born. And yet this goes back to our finite language failing us. But eternal generation tells us that in some way, the son relates to the father like any son to a father, but in an eternal and non-subordinate way. Okay, so the doctrine of eternal generation simply makes the best use of biblical language about the father and son, right? This idea of him being begotten, him being from the father, all things were created by him and through him. He's the firstborn over all creation. Recognizing that none of these things indicate that Jesus was created or that he's lesser than the father. And it recognizes that language only gets us so far. So although eternal generation can be somewhat confusing, it is an historic and orthodox doctrine to affirm and to celebrate. 
It helps us describe some of the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the Trinity. Okay, as the church fathers always remind us, there is a mystery and attention that we should lean into and not go too far. This is what all the early heretics did. They went too far. They were too creative, too innovative, took analogies too far. We don't want to do that. Okay, but Jesus Christ is not just a man with a special blessing from God. He's his eternal son, fully divine, and yet willing to become an obedient man, to be the second Adam, and to substitute himself for our sins.